We're in Titus chapter 3 today, working our way through the epistles of the Apostle Paul and what I've called affectionately the Christian life of Paul. What we're trying to show in the study of the New Testament, we're really just trying to summarize what happens in Paul's life from beginning in Acts and on through um, all, his, all of Paul's letters. What we're showing chronologically is that the apostle was very simple. I mean, profound, very simple. The apostle Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. He's not a special super duper Christian any more than any of us are. He's just a sinner saved by grace with a specific calling, a specific set of gifts and a specific responsibility. And so that does set him apart from us. But he's an apostle of Jesus. He's coming to us with the message of our Savior as Jesus taught through his, through his teachings we read in the Gospels. Most especially what Jesus taught in the upper room discourse, which we all know is John chapters 13 through 17. The Gospel of John chapters 13 through 17. The seed teaching that, would, that the rest of the New Testament letters would grow out of. The teaching of our Savior the last night before he was crucified. And that is, again, John chapters 13 through 17, a unique message of what would happen for the church when the Holy Spirit came to start building the church. What would happen after he left when he sent the new comforter, a new paraclete I'm sending you to, uh, to equip you. And what Jesus did in his departure in establishing the mission of the church, the apostle Paul, like the other apostles, carried out and established what we have today, the Christian spiritual life with a mission focus because the Lord Jesus has placed us on mission. We read in Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 that all authority Jesus says has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the father and the son of the Holy spirit by teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And Jesus did not mean until the end of Paul's ministry. He didn't mean until the Holy Spirit comes 10 days later on the day of Pentecost. He meant until he comes to get us. He is with us in the sense that he sent his Holy Spirit to equip us for the work that we have been called to do. And that's why we're studying the Christian life of Paul. From Paul's life, you learn to be on mission. From Paul's life, you learn why you have the assets that you have spiritually. From Paul's life, you learn what therefore your life is about and what you're doing here and what, what's the point of it all. It is, it is the life of Paul that God has set up specifically in the New Testament with so much of it being about him that, that shows us that even somebody who is irredeemably after the flesh is irredeemably self-righteous this is the wickedest person. He is the one that, that is, he calls himself the least of the saints and the worst of the sinners because of his attempt to kill the church before it was even out of the crib. His attempt to destroy the body of Christ as it was just getting started as Saul of Tarsus. Even somebody who is hopelessly deranged in his divorce from, from reality and his rebellion against God while claiming to be serving God. Even somebody so confused and deep down that well of confusion could be used by God for a wondrous and eternal purpose in his daily choices. And that's your life and mine. Broken, sinful people saved by the grace of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone in his work and only what he did and not what we've done as we'll see today. By our salvation, we have like the apostle Paul been made fit to serve him been given a spiritual gift, been given the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in this new life according to the instructions we have here as we're studying today. Yeah, we have our vacation slide. I want to go uh, minister on the island of Crete. Um, the problem with Crete 
is it's full of Cretans. Uh, in Titus 3, the Apostle Paul, as by, by way of review, says, remind them, these Cretan believers, he was winding down his epistle, remind them to rulers and authorities to submit, to obey. What I do is I'll translate from the Greek and Hebrew. I'll also read on the New American Standard, New King James, King James. I'll check the NIV, the ESV, the Darby, the New English translation, all the great Bible translations. But I'll also translate for myself so I can see how we got our English. And so I'll try to show you some technicolor through as we go. But remind them to submit to these rulers and authorities for every good work to be ready. Now, this is the theme. One of the great themes of Titus is that believers have been saved for a purpose. And that purpose is the works that God is calling us to work in. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell you how you got the life and why you have it. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But Ephesians 2, 10 tells you what to do about it. For we are God's workmanship, his crafted craftsmanship product, his workmanship created that, that word created new in Christ Jesus. When you first trusted in Christ created new in Christ for the good works that he prepared for us to walk in. He prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. This is Ephesians 2.10. And that's what Titus is really about is you Christians need to be about God's work. And so they need to be ready for every good work as we belabored greatly first hour. And then he gives a list of the virtues of the Christian, uh, some of the virtues of the Christian life to malign no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, showing all humility, humility toward all men. This is the character quality that you and I will have. And we, we, let's see, we did this last hour. We talked about the various ways in verses one and two, Paul described virtues that you have in your new life in Christ, generally submissive to authority. That's what the scriptures teach. I talked a little bit about in our culture, how we have a problem called self-government. And so you can't just take Pauline uh, life under Nero with the Roman system and then say, okay, so whatever person usurps our constitution, we submit that. that. That's not how it works. You submit within the constitutional structure, which has plenty of ways of redress and, uh, and, and we're in a great time of turmoil and trouble. And our citizenship ne needs to be in heaven. It always has been, but it really needs to be more now, I think, in our history as a country than ever. And I'm heartbroken with you if you understand the circumstance in which we live, in which our civilization is fraying and decaying and sliding into an abyss of insanity and not self-government, not self-government. And the word socialism, which I looked it up it, I, under there is, is communism is really the way it gets enforced um, historically is going to be a horrible way for us to try to pursue this instruction to submit to rulers and to authorities. But I promise you this. In communist China, where it is horribly oppressive to be the kind of Christian that I am, who tells people about Jesus Christ, especially children. In communist China, the Christian church under oppression is thriving. And we will do that in communist United States if we must. And I pray for your sake, for the sake of your children and mine, that we don't have to. But if that's what if we get, reap what we've sown, if we're going to be wicked with our freedom, so we lose it, if that's the way God takes us as a country, then I will challenge you that when you find yourself imprisoned under a communistic regime, that you will submit to the rulers and authorities to obey them. Now, I also challenge you that in as much as you can, if you can find some rulers and authorities to submit to that'll fight it, let's do that too. <laughs> that's been the story of the United States, uh, really that I grew up in in the 80s was we fought communism. We fought it tooth and nail. 
And, um, and we've been adversarial about it uh, my whole life. So anyway, that's an application piece. But these are the virtues of the new life you have in Christ. Respect for authority, diligence about being ready to the works God has for you, the control of your tongue. Don't malign. That is to attack people with your tongue. There are people that need correction and in your life, God has set it up so that you have to step up and make corrections and it hurts to do it. And it's hard. And all the uncomfortable social reality of, Hey, you're getting this wrong and I'm concerned for you, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone that's sinful with their mouth who likes to hurt other people. And especially in a way that makes them feel better about themselves. And that's forbidden here. No maligning. No um, causing conflict. You don't want to be a brawler, uh, the, new, or the King James says. Uh, but but uh, the word uh, peaceable means not warlike, not causing war. Gentle is the most interesting one we saw last hour because gentle means that you're not holding everybody to every possible stricture. Your life isn't a bunch of tripwires you've set around you to see who can mess up. You're actually gracious and tolerant of the weaknesses and shortcomings of people. In other words, the way you want to be treated, yeah, I messed up, I'm sorry. You want to be forgiven when you own it? You want people to accept that you are mistaken, you make mistakes and you're broken? Yeah, you got to treat people that way. Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus who taught us, for example, uh, the golden rule in the pen of Matthew. Humble is a better translation than considerate, but if you're humble, you will be considerate. Humble means that you know who you are in Christ. You're not great because it's you. You're great because of who Jesus is. And your greatness comes from God as your creator who made you in his image and God who made you new in Christ. That's where greatness lives. And that's where you live your life. Your self-identity needs to be in Christ. And that would be Christian humility so that you can say, as Paul does, there's nothing good in me. The good thing about me is what Jesus alone is doing him. And he is the celebrity. He's the hero. So there is Christian humility. So that takes you to the next list, which is the Christian vice or the vices of the old life. We beforehand were, even we were foolish. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending life in wickedness and envy, despicable, hating one another. And this was just all last Sunday. Now, this is how we are in ourselves without God's grace in us, without God working in us. This is, these are some of our tendencies. And, and we're also really good at enlisted, but we're really good at not seeing this in ourselves. I'm basically a good person. Yeah, we're all basically sinners bound for the lake of fire. We're all basically disobedient and rebellious against God. And so Paul makes this list of the way we are in our default. And my favorite word in this that helps me understand a lot of it is deceived. It doesn't say liars. We are because, but, but because prior we've been deceived victims. You want to talk about victimhood? Remember the old snowflake thing of everybody's a victim. I'm feeling triggered, you know, school's about to start and the college will be back in session and it'll all be about safe spaces and um, the restriction of free speech on the campus. And we're not going to cry about that, but everybody is a victim. Everyone's a victim. Well, guess what? We are. Everyone is a victim, but not like we think. Well, they sinned against me. They were hurt. They hurt me. Yeah. And you've sinned against someone else. And in a sense, we're all kind of in a playpen of sinfulness and brokenness where we hurt each other. And you shouldn't, and you need to own it when you do. And that's really mostly a sin against God because he cares how you treat his kids. But, but the bigger 
offense, the bigger thing that has happened where we are victims is we've been deceived. Satan's deception has deceived the nations. The whole world is under a, a, a supernatural blindness to say, I don't have to submit to the creator. And when he tells me, for example, in his word, when he tells me what I need to know, because he tells me, I don't have to listen to that, but rather I will independently decide for myself what I think is right. And I will stand in independent judgment over God and see how he works. And then I'll look at the other thing and see how these things fit. And I will become God in my own thinking. That is Satan's deception of mankind. It's especially uh, demonstrated in Genesis chapter three, when the serpent tempted the woman. And we today see this as the universal factor in all cultures. Cultures are different throughout the world, but the world system of God's enemy that deceives the nations is uniform in its attack against God and against his revelation. And this was how Paul was spending life in wickedness and envy, despicable, hating one another. So I'm not going to show you that next slide, but now let's get into the answer. This is how we were. And Paul does this a lot of times in his letters. We were this way, but now something's happened. I was despicable and loathsome and hating one another and full of envy. And if I saw somebody get something that I wanted and I didn't have, I would hate them because they had it instead of rejoicing that they had a nice thing. Well, that must be nice for them and not mean it sarcastically. Well, that must be nice. No, I really mean it. It's nice that they had a good experience. See, ever, ever have that? Somebody gets a new car or something and your car's not old enough for you to, to do something new yet. And you're just, I mean, I never have, but I mean, I mean, y'all have, right? Have you ever had that experience where, where it, and you catch yourself and you're like, wait, what? Wait a second. Anytime someone gets a good thing, you have two choices. You hear good news about someone, you have two choices. And some of you are like, I'm nailing you. And, and I understand that. And others are like, what's he talking about? And don't worry about it. Something good happens to someone and you have two choices. You can say, I rejoice in the Lord on their account because something good happened for them. I'm, I really am happy for them. And maybe you get there after a process of thinking and choosing that. Or you can choose to say, well, what about me? You could say the, the, the news is so-and-so uh, had a promotion at work and somehow the news becomes, I didn't get a promotion. <laughs> We're not talking about you. It's about them. They got a promotion. Yeah, but I, but I didn't get one. And, and you find that you, you get, you get hung up where you can't look at anything but yourself. I mean, this is how humans are. And this is the brokenness of our sin. Sin incurves you on you. And it's all about you. And you've got people in your life that at times will try to try to shake you and get you out of this. I pray that you do have people that do this, but this is a problem. We kind of incurve on ourselves and we can call it selfishness. And there's all kinds of new language, narcissistic personality disorder. Oh yeah. Narcissistic personality disorder. I'm sorry to tell you that this church and every other church is full of this. These are people that think it's about them. We are the protagonist in the story of reality that we are telling ourselves. We're the hero. And until we repent, and that's a change of mind and say, God is the hero. He's the protagonist and I am his. 
we will be missing the point and we will not know our way, our fit, or the way we fit into the story. And it's a great way we fit in the story. Now, because we're broken, because we're sinners in verse three, God had to do something. And we're going to hear the gospel in verses four through seven, a long sentence. And I want you to strap in because there is a challenging connection logically between verses four through seven through this little passage. And this is why this, this passage is one reason that I, I really insist pastors need to be studying the, the Bible in its original language. Because you could just read through and it does speak to you, but it's so awesome to see the logical connection. So let's work through it. He says, but when, hata, we don't always have the word for when, when he means time, but here he does. He says, when the Christotes, the kindness and the philanthropia, the love of man, appeared. Let me read it in the American Standard. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, people say the New American Standard is woodenly literal. I think it paraphrases all the time. Listen to what it says in the Greek. When the kindness and the love for mankind, the philanthropy of God appeared, uh, appeared, and then it says of God, our Savior. And so it's a hard sentence to translate the way we do our, our English possessives. I've done it this way, which belonged to God, our Savior. When this appeared. So we were sinners in ourselves and hopeless. We're just in an infinite loop of sin. And that's what, that's the status of mankind. And then God intervenes. He breaks into the broken system and he, and he starts to fix us. And that's, that's what he's going to do. When the kindness and the love of mankind appear, let's start there. The kindness and love of mankind. One word, philanthropy, where we get the word philanthropy, philanthropia. Philos is love. And it means affectionate love that you have for family or friends. Uh, philanthropia, uh, philos, that kind of love. It's the love that you get a hug for this love. Agape love may give you a hug, but it's because you need some philos. And so agape is providing your need, right? That's the thought process, the thinking love of Christians. But this is philos. This is the love that that's my kid or that's my creation. And I love that. That's what we're talking about. His love of anthropos. That's the Greek word for man, anthropology. So this one word, it's a very rare thing in the New Testament, God's philos love for mankind, God's affectionate love toward mankind. Hang out on it. Think about it. It's motivating him. The reason for the cross is God's love for mankind in Romans 5, 8 and here. And Jesus came for us because of God's affectionate love for man. Kindness when the kindness of God and his love for man appeared. What you learn in verse four, before we ever talk about what he did, you learn about who God is. Before you learn about the things that he did, and we'll get that in verses five through seven, we heard about what we were like in our sin in verse three. And now we hear what God is like. He's kind and he's affectionate toward us. He's kind and he's affectionate toward us. What does the enemy say in his deception about God? That he's angry at us? Well, he's got his wrath that abides on sin for sure. And there is an eternal consequence of separation from God for rebellion against him. And that's why he sent his son. But make no mistake, God wants you. He wants a relationship with you, even you. And he knows all that you've done and he knows all that you're going to do. And it's all just as disgusting to him as you could beyond your imagination. When you think of perfectly holy and righteous God and what he sees when he sees our wickedness and our sin, and we don't even notice. We are sewer dwellers that can't smell ourselves compared to the infinite righteousness and holiness of God. 
and he has an affectionate love toward us. What you're learning here is that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, and that's the love of God, and that's what he's like. You're learning who God is. This is why you have your salvation. And to say no to the offer of eternal life in Christ, what's it saying about God? He's a liar. His son won't cover my sins. He didn't satisfy God's righteous wrath on my sin. I don't really need someone to take care of my sin. All the things that we'll say that are contrary to the nature and character of God. When his kindness and love for mankind appeared that belonged to God, our Savior. And then New American Standard says he saved us. But the Greek goes back to us. We started with us in verse 3 in our sin. We go to God in his kindness in verse 4. And now in verse 5, it's back to us, not our works. Not our works in righteousness, which we did. We go back to verse three and see we're sinners. We didn't do anything to be saved. And the main verb is he saved us. That's why he starts it. The, the, the English translators put it that way. We always have to put our, our thing in the front of the sentence. But in, in the Greek, Paul says, not from works of righteousness, which we did. We're verse three people. But according to his mercy, back to the contrast and God. So verse three is us in sin. Verse four is God in kindness and love for us. And verse five, us versus God, the contrast. Now, this is why Titus three, four through seven is the, one of the strongest places that'll emphasize the free grace of God offered for the salvation of mankind. It is not something you can earn or deserve because you're stuck in the infinite sin loop. You can't get out of it. You're stuck. We can't stop being broken and we can't save ourselves. God has to break in. And so we are on display again in verse three. And so it's not our righteous works, not in works we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, it's about God. It's what he did. And then the main verb, the sentence uh, that is the main sentence here is he saved us. The main clause in this little chunk of, of wonderful, infinitely valuable Pauline writ is he saved us. He saved us from Sozo in the um, aorist tense describing the action from a completed state, from a, a sense that it is just the fact of it. He just, he saved us. And then he says, through washing, through the washing of Palangonesia, one of the two places that the re regeneration is used in the New Testament. We don't see this word very much, but it's exactly what Jesus is talking about in John 3. You must be born again. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. People say right there, water. The water saves you. The water doesn't save you. The washing of regeneration re references the cleansing that happens when you first trust in Jesus Christ and God creates you new. You can't do this with physical water. And if, listen, if it was just the physical water, then we would expect the physical body to be completely cleansed. But it's not. It's dying. It's decaying. It needs a resurrection. But what we're saying is the inner man has been already regenerated. You're just waiting for your dwelling from heaven. We read in 2 Corinthians 5. You're waiting for the resurrection of the body. He saved us, how? Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So God saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about him now, whom God poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Titus 3, 4 through 7 is Trinitarian. 
God is our Savior. That's the Father he's talking about. And then he says, he poured out the Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do you hear all three persons of the, the Godhead? Titus 3 is Trinitarian. So that, having been justified by that one's grace, I know my English Bible says his grace, but it's explicit in the Greek, that one. Because we're doing the contrast between us and God. We're sinners in verse 3. God is kind and loving in verse 4. We are not righteous in our deeds. We didn't save ourselves in verse 5, but the Lord's mercy did it. God's mercy did it. And now, all that God did in our regeneration, now having been justified by that one's grace, by God's grace, not our own. That's why he uses the interesting, and it, it's, it's kind of rough to translate it, that one's grace, but that's what it means, that person. By that one's grace, we would become heirs. Kleronomoi, kleronomia is inheritance. A kleronomos is one who gets the inheritance. That means that there's something to receive. You stand to have something given to you. The inheritance, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So let's look at our so great salvation in the whole sentence. <laughs> because verse 8 says, this is a trustworthy statement. That's the end of the sentence. Verses 4 through 7 is the sentence. I love the complexity of this, but I'm also very challenged by it. I don't know, honestly, between you and me, I don't know if I'm able to hold the whole thought in my head at one time but I've written it all on one slide. When the kindness and the love for mankind appeared, which belonged to God, our savior, not from works and righteousness, which we did, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Let's, let's truncate that sentence a little bit and see the main flow of it. When his kindness and love appeared, he saved us. The other things are explaining conditions and arrangements and stuff, but it's when his kindness appeared, he saved us. but I wanted to help. You don't get to help. But what about I can do something for, you can't. But that would mean that it's just God doing it. Right. But that would mean that my desire to be a good person doesn't save me. But I so want to be a good person. Well, congratulations. Congratulations. Keep thinking that way. And if you take God's perspective on it, if you don't have the life, if you don't have God's righteousness accredited to you, then from God's perspective, all you have is desires. All you have is good intentions. But I want to do good. I want to be righteous. I once gave a gospel presentation to the people in the neighborhood for the, at a kid event um, in the fall. The neighbors came by and it was a neat thing and had a little fire out front and a uh, little campfire. And I gave a, a, a gospel presentation. It might've been even from this passage. And you know, with kids, you have to be careful. How deep can we sink in the explanation, right? And after explaining that it is all by God's grace and none of our works that we receive eternal life, that the only thing we do is open the hand of faith as it were and receive what God is offering by trusting in Christ. After I explained this, they were like, hey, thanks. It's good to be here. You know, my daughter's thinking of being a pastor. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and then somebody, somebody said, we, we do our best. That was the, the conclusion. The last word from the family was, we, we all do our best. 
And so I don't tend to tear my hair out, right? But it's so frustrating when it's so clear that there's nothing about doing our best here. Do your best. C.S. Lewis would tell you in Mere Christianity, go for it. Do your best so that you can be completely broken in your total failure. Now, I personally don't find in the Bible any statement that says you have to try your very best to, to get God's righteousness on your own and then fail and then fall down and say, I couldn't do it to, and, and it to be able to see God's grace and say, it's only by his grace. I don't find the Bible saying you have to do it that way, but if that works, then go for it. If you can, if you can try everything else, it's just the problem is that uh, the, time, the clock is ticking and you don't know how much time you have. I'd say learn from the wisdom of others, like the Apostle Paul, who say, it's not our works. It's not things that we've done. It's what Christ did for us. And what you and I need to do with that is trust him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So when the kindness and love for mankind appeared, which belonged to God, our Savior, he saved us. How? Through the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Oh, I thought he saved me through my commitment not to sin anymore. I was just going to turn my whole life over to him. And in that powerful gift of myself to God, maybe that would save me. No, it's actually something we don't even know about. That God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity is going to come and say, this is the deal. You have the life because I've given it to you. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that when the kindness of God appeared and his love for mankind... He saved us so that having been justified by that one's grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He's, when, when God's kindness and love appeared to us, he saved us so that we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He saved us for an inheritance. When did this happen? Well, God hung his son between heaven and earth so that we would see it. He's a placard for the world. And everybody talks about, you know, everybody's got the cross as our symbol. Well, what, what is that? It's, a, it's an instrument of, of humiliation. It's also a billboard. Romans had it as a billboard. Don't cross the Roman Empire. You will be nailed to wood and stuck between heaven and earth and eventually suffocate to death. When did he appear? When Jesus came, he died for our sins once for all. On what basis did God save us? Not from our works, not on the basis of things we've done, but according to his mercy. It's all of his kindness toward us. And what did God do? He saved us, but how? The Holy Spirit made us new in Christ. That's how he does it. <laughs> it didn't say what you do to receive it. You trust him. But, he, but he's talking about from God's side of things, how does this work? It is your faith. And that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And then the why. God didn't save you to go to heaven. He saved you and you will go to heaven and you will enjoy eternity in the new heavens and new earth and you will reign with Christ in his coming kingdom. And that is your destiny. But that last thing that I mentioned, I contend, is what he saved you for. Why he saved you. He saved you because you have an eternal purpose. You have an eternal stewardship the kingdom of God. And it is a coming kingdom. It is not with us. We're not experiencing it now. Understand it is as the prophets of the old Testament expected, as Jesus taught, it is going to be 
the Psalm 2 kingdom of peace between the nations. It is going to be glorious. And when Jesus himself comes to establish it, we will be with him. The reason, the reason for his salvation is so that you would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so when you think about hope, hope is a future orientation. It's not right now. It's I have stability now because of what God promised in the future. I'm expecting him to do what he said. When you talk about your inheritance, that's something that is coming. That's something that is on deposit, but we're waiting for distribution. We have the earnest. We have the Holy Spirit now in Ephesians 1.14, the earnest of the inheritance. God promised the big deposit after we live this life in service to him. In Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 16 and 17, we are fellow heirs with God if we suffer with Christ Jesus. We're fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. And so here's the thing. You are not saved to sit. You are not saved to uh, wait. I'm just waiting on the rapture. You're not saved to uh, just go to heaven and get your, your communist issued stuff. You get your cloud and your harp and your halo Everybody gets the same thing. That's not the the description in the New Testament anywhere. You are saved to serve now and eternity. And the service now is setting up eternity. This is the faithful word. And concerning these things, I want you, Titus, Paul says, to insist. I put commands in red. Titus, you need to do this so that they will be intent to engage in good works. Now, I had to read verse 8 because it is the application of verses 4 through 7. You're so great salvation, which has nothing to do with your works of righteousness in terms of getting it. But you're saved because God wants you to be intent to engage in good works. Those who have believed in God. These things are good and profitable for men. We do not preach works at Preston City Bible Church. We preach grace through faith. But... I guess we do preach works because you've been saved for the work that God prepared for you. I'll close on an image of work. Dad has an enterprise that he's been building. Abba, dad. That's the Hebrew Aramaic for dad or daddy. God, your father, has a project that he's working on. That's the most important thing going in history. His, his deal. Not what the historians say is important. Not what they think on the news is important. Not what people at work say is important. What God thinks is important. It's his project. Paul talks about it as a building project in 1 Corinthians 3 and challenges you to build with the right materials. Now, your dad has an enterprise and he is grooming and training you, maturing you in his son to participate in his work. It's the most awesome and important and satisfying, eternally significant thing that you will ever be involved in. And you have the privilege of your father saying, I want you to do this work. I want you to be part of this effort. Pastors will browbeat their churches about personal evangelism and going out soul winning and go visit people. And you need to get to know your neighbors and they should do all those things. But we get a sense of duty that becomes drudgery. This Christian duty God is calling us to, listen, it's God writing you a billion dollar check and saying, I have instructions that I want you to fulfill. You say, okay, yes, sir. What would you like me to do? I will now have you go and cash that check. Okay, that is all. It is God commanding you to the greatest privilege that you can imagine. That is the works 
that God has prepared for you. It is God commanding you to the greatest privilege, the greatest blessing, the greatest that you can imagine. That's what God's commands are. They're him loving you and saying, uh, go cash this check. Our father in heaven, we thank you for eternal life. We thank you for Abba father that you have been intimate with us, familial. We have the royal family of God because your son has died for us and you've united us to him through the spirit. Father, we don't want to fall short of the grace of God as we've described. We don't want to benefit from it and then not live it out. We don't want to have the life but not live it. Father, there may be some here today that have not truly understand, understood the grace of God in the gospel, that you are not telling us to work for our salvation. You're telling us to trust in your son whose work is our salvation. And we pray for them. Father, we who have the life, I ask that you would strengthen us through your word and the power of your spirit to be ready for the works you prepared for us. Don't let us deny you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.